mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com How many times a week should we be having sex? The one thing is, I'm Kate Moyle, I'm a psychosexual and relationship therapist. What would you say to someone who has low libido and potentially their partner has high libido? The disproportionate amount of people that are struggling with sex, it's just massive. What is your opinion on porn? What is your approach with alternative sexual lifestyles? Should people be faking orgasms? For me, the biggest problem is Ladies and gentlemen, today is the day we are learning to have better sex with psychosexual and relationship therapist Kate Moyle. I have wanted to do this episode for so long. As you know, on this podcast, we don't just talk about like the businessy bits. Obviously, that's what it's focused on a lot of the time. We talk about people's careers, we talk about people's stories, we talk about all of these different things that I think are relevant to enriching your life. And included in that for me, is very much being able to open up and remove the stigma on conversations about things like sex. I think that it is so important and I think that it's not talked about enough. I think especially women do not talk about sex and female pleasure, etc, etc enough. And so I just wanted to do this episode to literally myth bust, answer questions, to get clear on like how much sex we should be having, how we can have better sex, what causes a low libido, what kinks are, what all of these various different things. I really enjoyed recording this episode. I think you're going to love it. If you did enjoy this episode, please do me a favor and go and follow or subscribe, depending on which platform you are on, to this podcast. It makes a huge difference to the amount of guests that we can get on, the amazing guests, the caliber of guests, etc., etc. And I would like to talk about lots of interesting things on this podcast. So it helps me, it helps my ego, it helps the guests, it helps your ears, it helps your experience. And we love all of those things. So please, and thank you, please do that. If you wouldn't like to do that, no worries. And still have a lovely day. <laughs> Psychosexual and relationship therapist Kate Moyle claims that difficulties in our sexual and intimate relationships are much more common than we think. Her aim, to open the discussion by providing a unique and confidential space to have those important conversations. Kate addresses the challenges couples are facing in their sex lives and relationships, such as how much sex should we be having to how do we communicate better in order to have better sex. Sparking this conversation, Kate looks to improve couples' sexual health, well-being and happiness, whatever that looks like for them. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me on. First of all, to give everyone some background on you and your expertise and what your kind of point of view is when we're discussing these questions, could you just give us a little bit of background on your career, who you are, your qualifications? So I am a psychosexual and relationship therapist. I'm also a psychosexologist. And for me, really, the crux of what I do is I offer talking therapy for people who are struggling with anything to do with sex. Mm -hmm. So it's a specialist branch of psychotherapy. Mm. And the reason that we need a specialist branch is that sex might come into the therapy room for loads of people, for loads of conversations in a small kind of general way. But for some people, they're really stuck with specifics of sex, whether it's mm. anxiety, 
fear, dysfunction, the impact of medication, they've had injuries, cancer, difficulties in relationships, infertility. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And sometimes we need a space to be able to really unpack For sure. that stuff. And because sex is still, even in 2023, quite taboo, a lot of people feel like they need to know that they can do that somewhere and that it's okay to yeah. kind of but then I'd be like, do you know, I really need to talk about sex. Mm. Like, this makes me feel really embarrassed. I am so uncomfortable. And so psychosexual therapy really is the space to have those really uncomfortable mm. conversations and to know it's okay. I often say the sign above the door says you can talk about sex here. And I've always been fascinated in psychology and what makes people work and what mm. makes, makes people tick. Even as early as university, I was looking at research into sexual partners from a kind of evolutionary perspective. And it all just really clicked into place for me and it kind of snowballed from there. So I trained first as a psychosexual therapist, then as a relationship therapist and tied those two things in together. And now I host a podcast about sexual wellness, work with lots of brands mm. and try and take the learning from inside the therapy room to outside yeah. the therapy room. And for me, a massive part of that is almost every single person that I work with says, I feel so embarrassed, I feel so ashamed, this, right. this stuff isn't normalized, am I broken? Mm. And the disproportionate amount of people that are struggling with sex to talking about struggling with sex, it's just massive. Right. And that's because we don't have this kind of healthy sexual mm. culture or narrative or conversation. Yeah, what is people's, um, the kind of first reaction of people when you tell them you're a sexologist? Like, what's the perception of that? I think everyone thinks that I'm like the mum from Meet the Fockers. Right. <laughs> um, which is, my job is very different to that, but that's basically what yeah. everyone says. They're like, oh, like in Meet the Fockers. I'm like... She's fabulous, but then I do something very different. Highly rate it. A little bit different. <laughs> but I think it's intrigue. I yeah. think everyone would love to know what happens behind everyone else's bedroom doors. Of course. People either really want to talk to me or don't want to talk to me at all. And <laughs> running away. I think that's kind of representative of the general feeling about when sex comes up as a topic. And I think I've been practicing for oh, probably nearly 10 years. Mm. And the difference I've seen in that 10 years is massive. Really? Yes. But I think that it's that sense of, okay, like, what are we going to talk about then? Mm. Or do we have to talk about it? And yeah. Sex is so personal, but also such a big part of our lives, but then not. So it's in so many advertising campaigns mm. and it's in, you know, on posters and we see so much stuff that's sexualized, but then we don't have these kind of healthy foundation mm. sex education conversations. So it's very mixed. Yeah, and we do have so much, I guess, legacy stigma based on the fact that there is still in people's lifetime now, there have been, I mean, literally 20 years ago, like as in, or 10 years ago even, like that. there's been such a change in the way we see sex and the way mm. we were able to talk about sex, especially as women. And I can imagine that like legacy stigma if people are being raised by someone who actually in their childhood could never, ever, ever, ever could even go near the subject. I can imagine there's that kind of lasting stigma there. Definitely. And we are all initially taught about sex from the generation above. And they've all been taught from the generation above. So we're probably always running a bit behind. Of course. Because we can only do so much with the information that we have and the social world. So when we think about sexual revolutions, you know, the pill in the mm. 60s was the first enormous one. And really the second one is the internet. Right. And those are 
big monumentous moments in terms of how we think about sex, how sex has changed, how we can view sex, how we engage with it as a topic, our autonomy over ourselves sexually. And these are all massive, massive changes that happen kind of overnight. Mm, Of course. In your kind of practicing work, what would you say are the biggest things that come up time and time again from kind of first-time clients? Mm. The one thing that comes up with everyone, irrespective of whether we are working on anxiety, um, you know, recurrent miscarriage, stress, desire, couple difficulties, Mm. um, sexual dysfunctions, lack of sexual experience, the one thing is shame. Right. Everyone's comes in with the feeling of maybe I'm the broken one, you know, am Mm. I broken? I must be the problem. It doesn't look like anyone else has these problems. Mm. I don't see myself represented anywhere. For a lot of people, having to reach out to a psychosexual therapist or any therapist a lot of the Mm. time can feel terrifying and feels like such a massive step and a massive ask for help. And do you think there's a kind of misrepresentation of, I mean, a lot of those things in terms of shame and being like I'm not seeing myself represented and all of those things are based on like a misrepresentation of what like quote-unquote norm is and like Mm -hmm. whether there's a norm where do you think that generally comes from we live in what we call um, a heteronormative society of course which is that we assume that the standard is man meets woman and off they go into the sunset and that's what we kind of use as the standardized model yeah so anything outside of that Mm -hmm. is then considered to be not normal right in terms of when we when we use that terminology within that we then have a normal model of sex which is that intercourse is real sex and Mm -hmm. everything else isn't right or doesn't count as much or isn't as important and so really then when we're talking to anyone about sex that's the that's the what's considered the norm and we know that that just isn't the case. We see such a massive diversity in mm. sexualities, in sexual practices, preferences, desires, wants. And when you think about it, we accept that in almost every other area of our lives. We don't mm. all like to go to the same restaurants. Like food is yeah, a great analogy because we don't all like the same restaurants. We weren't all brought up or grew up eating the same foods. Mm. We have different tastes. Some of us like our food spicy, some of it like it mild. Some of us like different cuisine. Some of us like to eat the same thing every night for a week. Someone else might be like, I like to eat cereal at dinner instead of at (laughs) breakfast. And we're completely accepting. We don't go to a restaurant and expect everyone around the table to eat the same thing, to pick the same thing off the menu. Mm. And if we do, I think we'd probably think it was weirder Mm. than everyone all doing something different. And do you think because obviously sex in its very nature is quite hidden Mm. in the way that obviously I might show my working day on social media but I don't generally show my sex life on social media and I feel like you know there's part of that that's pretty inherent I mean for obvious reasons. Do you think then those stigmas can ever properly change when obviously representation of food is shown everywhere because you're being like oh I love mushrooms or I love a burger or like Mm. whatever it might be and you're ordering that at a restaurant you're not seeing like the different people's like sex lives or sex patterns or whatever it might be do you think there's an element of that that will always be pretty underrepresented no I'm not suggesting that (laughs) right no no no, of course I know it's not (laughs) what you're suggesting Um, Well, there is there are platforms that kind of do that. There's one called Make Love Not Porn, which is like real couples having real sex. A woman called Cindy Gallup founded it, and that was a bit of a pushback against the 
that's so interesting I've never even heard of that it's it's an amazing platform actually and that was a deliberate thing to show these more realistic versions of sex for people that wanted to see it and people that wanted to show it Mm. but I think it's about the conversation Mm. much more than anything else and we see I work with a um, a luxury sex toy brand called Lilo Mm. and it's been amazing. I love Lilo. I gifted a Lilo to every single one of my close friends at Christmas one year. Ah. The Lilo Sona 2, in case anyone is interested. <laughs> it's a great... An excellent product. Um, <laughs> get five-star reviews. I literally <laughs> gifted it to everyone. I was like, and one to you, and one to you, and um, I was like, you all You're a good this. friend. Thank you so um, much. I like to encourage a healthy but, sex life. <laughs> but for me, even seeing, and it's something I've noticed a lot recently, that influencers and people are mm. happy to advertise sex toys on their platforms yeah. and on their pages I think is a massive thing because 100%. what that's saying is I love sexual pleasure I like to experience this myself and mm. that that's another part of my well-being like I show you know my meals like I show yeah. my workout routine and you're not having to show yourself right exactly using or showing yeah. anything, but it's just a part of the conversation which positions it yeah alongside other areas for health and it's just saying it's okay yeah and especially when we've seen there's so little out there on women's pleasure Mm. and I think that you know we talk a lot about the fact that in kind of sex education at school or wherever it might be we are never taught about women's pleasure and sex is seen as as you say penetrative sex between a man and a woman it's seen as like that is what sex is Mm. whereas obviously we know the stats on like how many women can actually ever orgasm through penetrative sex or you know women who spend I mean I put a question sticker up on my story before this and the amount of women that were answering being like I've never had an orgasm through sex like all of this and based on the fact that I've bred up a lot on it I've kind of been like I really hope you know that that's like so not and I hope Mm. you're not thinking there's like you know something wrong which obviously is what we'll be going through we're going to answer like a load of FAQs and everything and get your opinion on them but it's just there's I love the idea that kind of being able to normalize the fact that actually as you say it's almost like part of self-care and just being able to like share experience Mm. and increase that representation in terms of being like the more we're able to talk about things. And as you say, it's not about showing it. It's not about kind of changing that entirely, but it's about just being able to normalise and advocate for, you know, in that circumstance, for example, women's Mm. pleasure. It's just about it being there. Right. And being a part of the conversation. And we know, for example, this has a massive impact on the health of women and people with vulvas that we so often use the word vagina right, to course. mean vulva. And when we're talking about vulva, we're talking about the external genitals. And we're talking about the vagina, which is the internal canal. Yes. And so often people colloquially use the word vagina to yeah. mean vulva. And that is A, anatomically incorrect, but it's miseducation. So how can we educate people about vulval cancers, about right. gynecological cancers, when they can't identify exactly what's going on in which part of their body and the Eva Peel have done amazing research on this mm. which has found something like 45% of women couldn't correctly identify all of their anatomy on a diagram and it's I'm not sure if that's the exact stat but it's definitely yeah. around that number and that's an education thing so that's that's got health risks mm. but then when we put that into pleasure the clitoris was not mentioned in sex education ever like it's not a yeah. It's like it doesn't exist. Yeah. And so the focus was always on not getting STIs and how to or not get pregnant. Mm. And that 
denies the pleasure. And there's an amazing researcher called Dr. Laurie Mintz, and she talks about how when we use the language incorrectly, so when we say vagina, we mean vulva, we're actually eradicating the part of the female anatomy which creates the most pleasure. So it's not even then a part of the conversation. And in the way we're kind of talking about representation, as a sex therapist, sexologist, what is your opinion on porn? Such a big, big topic. And it's one that obviously brings up a lot of moral conversations. People, yeah, I was actually course. at a talk this week with Erica Lust, who's an amazing feminist pornographer and director. And I think that for me, the biggest problem is that we haven't built in what we call porn literacy, right. which is we know it's there. We know it's not going anywhere. We know the internet isn't going anywhere. So how do we build in, when young people particularly can access it, an educative element which closes the gap? Because that's the thing. We have this gap between porn and real sex. Mm. And we know that that gap is there. And so by young people, if they're going to the internet to get their education most of the time, which they are because they don't have to ask anyone, no one's embarrassed, it's an easy way of getting it without having to kind of go through any mortifying conversations Mm. with adults who also don't feel comfortable then that's the first thing you're probably going to come across it's Mm. a huge huge percentage of the internet mom deserves better than a drugstore card this mother's day surprise her with a truly special personalized card from moonpig add your favorite photos a heartfelt message and we'll even mail it for you the same day all for just five dollars from mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And what we can then do or what we should be doing is using our focus to say, okay, if that's what you're going to see, which you're going to probably see without anyone else being able to get there first how do we say that's porn and real life sex is different Mm. and is not represented this is not representative of everything that actually might happen right and I think that that's the biggest thing that we really need to focus on because you don't also like as part of that conversation when we're saying you know even when we talk about educating on women's or female pleasure when you're, you know, talking about sex education, all of these things, the conversation that always comes back is like, why are we showing children or early teenagers about sex? Mm -hmm. We obviously know in the data that the more we're able to normalize something and the more we're able to educate where it's happening anyway, is probably going to be an advantage. Mm. But also, you know, I understand that in the conversation when we're saying, oh, you know, we should be showing 13 year olds what real sex is like, obviously there's going to be pushback on that too. How do we kind of put that in between when, you know, people are, I know, obviously people at 13 are searching up porn and they're kind of trying to work out, you know, what sex even is, what it even looks like, what yeah. they should be kind of expecting from it, all, all of that, and obviously getting something that is probably vastly misrepresented. How do we get that in there whilst not exposing people who 
aren't maybe at that stage mm. yet and are. There are some amazing, amazing sexual health, sex education charities doing really mm. brilliant work in this sector. But I think it's also giving young people a chance to ask all the questions. Mm. And I think that they want the answers, but yeah. they don't want to be faced with the awkwardness that can come about by having to ask them sometimes, or the shame. Right. You know, why are you asking that? Why would you want to know that? Mm. And there are some brilliant sex educators at the moment and organizations who are helping parents right. to have those conversations. Of because course. again, you know, that thing we were talking about earlier, one generation teaches the next. I'm a parent mm. and I don't know exactly how to perfectly have this conversation with my kids when we get to that point. And I do this for a job. Yeah. And that is a really normal part of our existence and that's because we want to get it right and so we then feel frozen and panicky about the idea yeah. of getting it wrong I remember that's the reason I was laughing because I was thinking about when my mum had clearly found out that I'd had sex with my boyfriend when I was like a teenager and I just remember we'd just broken up and we were like me and my mum were like we weren't home all the time like together and we were like sitting next to each other on the sofa and I remember she just came and sat down like didn't really look at me and she goes how are you dealing with the breakup and I was like yeah okay thanks and she goes you know it is really hard sometimes and I was like yeah it's really hard and she goes especially if it was sexual <laughs> and she would just sit in silence and then she kind of walked off and I just sat there like my oh. mum knows <laughs> <laughs> that was horrible <laughs> I just so vividly remember that experience. <laughs> Obviously had like never spoken about something like that at that point. But I remember, you know, like when I first started having sex and I went to, I remember finding out about, at school about the fact that, you know, contraception was free and you could go to mm. a clinic and like all of that. And to be fair, whatever age I was, like I remember going to St. Mary's Hospital in, in Paddington, mm -hmm. like finding out about it, going there, sitting there in like my school uniform, literally people looking at me like, what the fuck? And just being like, oh, can I get pill please um and I just remember I mean there is obviously a lot of great access within the UK in terms of mm -hmm. things like that I wouldn't say anyone sat there and you know kind of had a proper conversation with me but even the access to something like a contraceptive mm -hmm. um without having to like have your parents there etc cetera, etc cetera, I think obviously very important but I assume the majority of the time if that's not like presented as an option then also that's why you know, people feel too embarrassed to talk about it and therefore too embarrassed to protect themselves properly mm -hmm. when they're not ready to maybe talk to someone about it. A huge part of my job is helping people to make informed choices mm. about their sexual well-being, informed choices about their sexual health. Mm. So how do we work out for them actually what they want rather than having the sex that they think they should be having mm. because that's what they've been told mm. or what we... Um, kind of grow up with and there's an amazing author educator called Emily Nagoski and she wrote an incredible incredible book and she talks about how sex is a bit like gardening mm. and so we can't choose like where we were planted where the garden was planted or where it started but we can fertilize the soil we can look after some bits we can decide which which we don't want to water which right. bits we don't want to grow and which bits we want to focus on or which we want to nurture and I think that sex can be like that because so many of us take what we're given right. about sex and we don't ever question it and mm -hmm. we don't ever think about it and we don't ever wonder okay well is this working for me or is mm. there a reason I'm not really enjoying this or is there a reason that I'm feeling really embarrassed or really ashamed mm. or this doesn't feel good for me but I think it's what I should be doing right. I think it's what is normal and therefore I should just carry on doing that because what if I said to my partner do you know what, this isn't working for me. And they said, what? 
Yeah. Well, this, that's just what we do. I would be the one that would feel like I'm the problem. Yeah, no, that's totally fair enough. And how would you encourage people to combat that and find out what parts you like do want to water? <laughs> I think it's um, finding out what your normal mm-hmm. is. And I think that can sound quite therapy, you know, like there is no normal, find right. out what your normal is. But the reality is, it's about finding what works for you. All bodies, although like mapped out in a similar way, Mm. are unique are Mm -hmm. different we're gonna have learned from our experiences and have gone through life some things working for us and some things not and have learned what we like or don't like or what we're curious about and I think that not assuming is a big part of it that but the problem with that is often if we're the partner it takes the confidence and ability to know how to communicate with our partners which we're not taught you know I often say that trying to have a conversation about sex is like trying to talk in a language that we haven't been taught because where do we see the versions of people sitting down and talking about their sex lives we only ever see the kind of Hollywood version which typically are it's gone really well or it's gone really badly right sure you know a couple kind of awkwardly lying in bed like with the sheets up to here being like oh so um (laughs) how do you think that went you know that that's like the the, you know the kind of version that we see and Sometimes it's about being able to feel confident enough to say to our partners, like, can we talk about sex or can we talk about our sex life or can we talk about what's working or not working? Or I'm really curious about this. How would you feel about trying it? And then if our partner says no, say, okay, that's, you know, understandable. What is it that you don't like the sound of? Or what do you think we could try? And these are kind of conversations we have in so many other areas of our Mm. lives, but we don't really know how to when it comes to sex. What are the biggest kind of misconceptions or issues you see coming into your workplace as a therapist based on porn or based Mm. on people's experience with porn I don't think it's just porn I think it's I think it's everything Everything. yeah Yeah. it's that sex has to look a certain way that Mm. our bodies have to look a certain way Mm -hmm. that you know particularly men have to have erections that perform in a certain way that Mm. last a certain amount of time that both partners have to simultaneously orgasm that certain acts are for everybody that we have to do certain things that we have to be kind of orgasming in every position and simultaneously and perfectly in sync with our partners (laughs) that nothing ever goes wrong that people don't ever get cramp or their bodies make weird noises or a position doesn't work or they laugh you know we never see the everyday right of course and the kind of fumbling and the messiness of sex we don't see contraception in lots of those um scenes or films and I'm not just talking about porn I'm talking about sex on screen and I think this is again where intimacy coordinators have started to play a really good role Mm. in our tv scripts so things like normal people sex education there are intimacy coordinators on set who not only are protecting the actors but they're helping to navigate some of those scenes to make them look more realistic to Make sure that the angles of bodies look like they're actually having sex. Because sometimes, and historically, we've seen bodies in positions that we all think, oh, I don't think I'd be able to do that yeah. at home. Like, how do they make that work? <laughs> and it's because they're not realistic. And actually, you know, when you have someone on set who's also a movement coordinator, they're saying, okay, guys, this angle doesn't work. Because then you get people at home trying to reenact it. And everyone's going, what's wrong with me? They could do it. I can't do it. Mm. And those thoughts, when it comes to sex, really burrow into... Yeah, of course. You know, our self-confidence, mm. our self-esteem. If we are struggling with sex in a relationship and that relationship ends, we kind of carry the hangover of the sexual struggles with us to the next 
relationship or if we're dating or if it hasn't gone well and you know maybe perhaps we've had a partner who might have blamed us for that or we're feeling like we're the problem then we don't check it out mm. with people like we do other areas of our yeah. health well-being mental health yeah you know if something wasn't working for you in another area of your life you'd probably sit down with a good mate yeah. or a sibling or someone you trust and be like, can I ask you, like, yeah. what's going on with that? And we don't do it with sex. Yeah, to be fair, I think that's one of the things I'm also, like, most grateful for, with like, with my friends. I feel so lucky to be, like, able to have that conversation. Mm. And it's not grimy. It's not, like, hor- it, it doesn't feel, like, intrusive. It feels like people trying to work themselves out, like, who you know, we're not taught that from external sources and just being able to talk about that type of thing Mm. I think is so valuable Mm. and I'm completely, you know, aware of the fact that that's not always normal in every friend group or in every situation but I do think kind of having that open conversation is so important for being able to like normalise. And that not every conversation about sex is sexualised. Of course. And I think that's one of the fears that lots of people have always had is Mm. how do I how do I talk about this with it not being a sexualised conversation. Of course. You know that's that's exactly what psychosexual therapy is Mm. you know I'd say a lot of it is pretty unsexy. Right of course. You know a lot really uncomfortable. Yeah. And you know we're really kind of helping people to talk about the things that they they feel most you know challenged by and that's such a big thing you know Mm. because you go in so fearful like what is going to happen if I kind of open up the Pandora's box of this and yeah actually so much of the time it's because we have paired up sex with anxiety or something Mm -hmm. negative or something stressful and then we see the knock-on effect on our sex lives on our intimacy we don't want to date because we're scared Mm. about getting close to someone and then sex not working mm. and then we would feel like a failure mm. and you know, all these words like failure broken I hear them all the time mm. and then so someone might say not kind of let their friends like ever set them up with anyone or go on a dating app or because they don't want to risk meeting someone liking them and trying to have sex mm. so they would rather just avoid the whole thing yeah but then it's difficult because or their friends are starting to date or mm. to settle down and that's what they want but they're, they're you know, most scared of the thing that they want the most. Yeah. And that's a really generalised example but it's a common one. Yeah. I asked my audience what questions they'd like answered to be able to find out more about sex, to be able to find out the norms around sex, to be able to have better sex. We're going to go through them. So first of all, what seems to be a very commonly asked question is libido wise Mm. how many times a week should we want to have sex or should we be having sex i knew this was going to be the first question i could have guessed too um everyone everyone always wants to know how what what is a normal amount of sex and there just isn't a clear answer and that's because we know that sex is in the context of the rest of our lives so it's impacted by it's not a constant of course it's not like you know once twice a week we have sex that's it done and really, it goes back to that answer that people find really frustrating because it's not a straight answer, which is the right amount for you. Mm. And the biggest problem that we see in couples isn't kind of the regularity or the amount of sex. It's where we see a desire discrepancy, nice which match, is the yeah. difference between what, if there's two people in that relationship, those two mm. people want. And 
actually the amount of sex we're having or the regularity of sex we're having is a pretty, it's a red herring mm. for quality of sex. Mm -hmm. We can't kind of say exactly that you know, having sex three times a week means that you're having better quality sex right, than someone course. who's having sex once a month because the sex might, that they might be having might be completely satisfactory mm. and enjoyable for them and that's all that they need. Yeah. And so for me, I'm much more interested in the satisfaction and the quality of the sex that people mm. are having than how much. But when it becomes a problem, or if you feel like it's a problem, that's the time to kind of talk to a partner and to say, mm. okay, do you know what? What's not working here? Because as soon as it becomes something that, what lots of couples do is if they, something they become stuck on, it all becomes the center of every argument. Of course, yeah, yeah. And yeah, then you see it, it knock, having a knock-on effect into other areas mm. of the relationship. And what would you suggest to someone who's at that stage where they're kind of finding that sex becomes the topic of every argument and it comes back to that and it, there mm. seems to be a lot of frustration around it? Yeah, I think there can be a lot of frustration. I would try and just get to the bottom of what's going on. Mm. So what often happens is for one partner sex might be and physical intimacy might be like a real indicator of love in a mm -hmm. relationship that's how they feel valued that's how they feel desired for them it is a really important kind of core part for other people it's less of a priority mm. and then if you understand that from each other you can understand that okay so why maybe I'm the one that needs to kind of just think about that a bit more mm. or the other partner can say do you know what I understand that you might see this differently to me so how can we make a bit more space and time to work on this. Right. And this is how we understand that desire works. Desire isn't always spontaneous. If it'll turned on and excited out of nowhere, like a kind of bolt of lightning, and then we have sex. For a right. lot of people, it's responsive, which means that it emerges in response to starting something physical mm. or some kind of sexual stimulation. Right. So that can explain why lots of people say, I wasn't really feeling in the mood for sex. I was thinking actually I'd rather just go to sleep. But then we were kissing and we right. were touching and I started to feel excited. And then we started moving into sex. So some people are more likely to be generally turned on or have a high kind of libido throughout their, you know, day, week or whatever. And some mm -hmm. people will only have that libido activated if it's activated by something like touch or some sort of stimulation. Yeah, and we see that people can have both types of desire. Right. And But we see that particularly in long-term relationships, because, you know, we're used to each other. Of course, It's not yeah. that we're not as explorative. We're not kind of getting to know each other in the same way. And that we often see that responsive desire becomes a more dominant way mm. of experiencing desire. Mm. But then we can really take control of our sex lives when we know that but most of us think that spontaneous desire is the only type of desire so then as soon as we stop having that we think, I've lost all desire mm. oh, so I've got I've now got no desire anymore actually responsive desire tends to be alive and well it's just not the version right that we've been taught and that we've seen and do you think then that a couple can have like a healthier sex life by maybe signposting you know maybe a night a week they have sex or like a occasion that they have sex or like something that you know that kind of like sleep hygiene thing that's like your body knows if you're about to go to sleep if you like turn on this music and turn mm. down the lights or like whatever it might be would you advocate for that when it comes to sex I think absolutely making the space for mm. kind of physical and intimate time 
as psychosexual therapists, we don't prescribe that people kind of schedule sex. Right, sure. Because it can create pressure. <laughs> yeah, and then, especially, bear in mind, you know, a lot of the time we're working with people who are struggling with sex. Yeah, of course. So kind of saying, right, on Tuesday night, you're going to go home and have sex just fills them with anxiety course, and fear. Yeah. And that's not helpful. But creating a dedicated space where I often say to couples, put your phones away, you know, mm -hmm. screen-free evening or screen-free time, mm. just to focus on each other, whether it's talking, eye contact, touching, all the things that are basic parts of human communication that start to release the kind of neurochemicals mm. that make us feel close to each other, that start to make you feel like you've got someone's undivided attention, all the things that play a big part mm. in sex, and then using that to kiss, touch, talk, be together, just be close. That is a platform from which we can start to see responsive desire yeah, emerging. That's so interesting. And do you think it's possible for a couple with two different sex drives or very different sex drives to be compatible long-term? I would say it's more normal and expected for partners to have different levels of sexual desire, interest, libido than for them to be perfectly matched mm. and and just working around that in terms of communication and yeah absolutely and particularly in long-term relationships we have to nurture that part of our relationship of our sex life and again we think it's not sexy to have to work at this stuff we think it's not sexy to have to talk about it we think that it should just happen that right. relation and that's just not the case it's something yeah. that we need to kind of consciously and intentionally yeah. do sometimes but we don't like yeah that I mean version. it's like anything in life like when you get used to something or you get into a routine like it's really it's easy to ex expect that if it's meant to happen then it's just going to happen but we don't actually expect that for anything else in our life Nothing. like literally for like going to the gym for like going to see our friends if we have to make space in our schedule like any of those different types of things we don't expect it to just fall into place otherwise it's quote unquote like not meant to be or like not healthy oh or whatever God, yeah. we have to signpost time for it mm -hmm. and we have to you know, prioritize or deprioritize or whatever it might be. And we very much do have this expectation, almost like this kind of animalistic expectation that we'll just like have sex when we want to have sex. And if we're not, then we're, mm. you know, maybe not into each other anymore or whatever it might be. Yeah. And that our relationships just work. Right. Sure. And I think it's all tangled up in the same thing, but I say this all the time, our friendships, we check in with our friends, we mm. book dinner, we, you know, but weekends away or we you know with our kids we sit down with them we do stuff we do our homework we teach them to do, do their homework we teach them to learn we check in with our families we call our mum. you know with our colleagues we work at it we're putting stuff in you know you've not built your business from not putting things in and then right, you get sure. things out and so but we think that our relationships and sex lives are these magical unicorns that just look after themselves but the amount of times that people say to me i just thought this would work itself out mm. And it doesn't. And I always say, but nothing just works itself yeah. out. And what causes low libido? Everything. You know, we <laughs> <Sure>. live in. <laughs> what doesn't? Um, you know, of course, of course, there are physical factors. So sure. some people might be having, you know, difficulties with hormone levels or um, difficulties with their relationship with their bodies, painful sex. Mm. So anything basically that can negatively impact sex can have a negative impact on desire because desire our motivation mm. for sex our want to be sexual is not gonna be thriving if sex itself is causing us pain discomfort yeah, yeah. emotional distress mm. so why would we want something that isn't working for us and so when it's not working we aren't 
you know, motivated or driven to do it. But we don't necessarily always know how to kind of put our hand mm. up and say, do you know what, this isn't, how do I change this? And I don't know how to word this properly, but is low libido kind of a quote unquote issue? I don't mean that in the way of like, obviously it will be a problem for some people's relationships or whatever it might be. But when we, we kind of saying there's no norm, I guess if someone thinks they have a low libido and they need, is it something that they need to fix? It depends if they feel like they need to fix it. So we need to differentiate between arousal and desire. So desire is the motivation and the want for sexual experiences. Arousal is the body's physical and psychological processes of preparing the body for sex. Mm -hmm. So if someone, and when those two things are aligned, we we call it concordance. So, and then when they're not, we talk about arousal or sexual non-concordance, which is basically when mind and body are out of sync, which can explain why people have experiences like I'm really kind of I'm feeling like physically turned on in a physio appointment or something like that I'm not attracted to my physio but it's just my brain has responded to something which is sexually relevant which is that I'm being touched right and it's doing its thing it's preparing the body for something and people are horrified when they have these experiences because they're oh my god I feel so mortified this is not you know I don't what if they notice something and that's because your brain is responding to what's sexually relevant in your environment. Right. And then what's personal to you are those things that you find exciting and eternal and desiring. And those things are about the person rather than the kind of mechanisms at play. Yeah. And so what we want is for people to be having kind of body and mind in sync. So psychologically, I'm interested in sex with my partner and then my body helps me along. But mm. we see... Like vaginal dryness, for example, is a really common symptom for women who are um, perimenopausal or going through menopause or breastfeeding. Mm. And that can then make sex uncomfortable. Mm, right. Which can mean that, or we can start to feel, you know, embarrassed. Or like, yeah. Oh God, why is this happening to me? Yeah. Like, this is not what I've been shown. Mm. And then we can start to kind of shy away from sex or we feel a responsive lack of desire mm. because it's not giving giving us the benefits yeah what would you say to someone who was like listening to this and has low libido and potentially their partner has high libido and it's obviously causing some issues but they can't see like even with communication they can't seem to get past it Mm. what would you say to someone in that type of situation I'd say try and work out what works better for you both so Mm. is it that actually you're someone who notices that when you start kissing Mm. or that you on feeling like your partner's hands on yourself and mm. that, like on you and that feels really good or that you have to kind of switch off from your day and switch on to a sexual mindset you mm. know I think a lot of people find it very difficult to be sexually interested when they're still really preoccupied with sure. their day or they haven't switched off from work or you know they're getting into bed and they're checking their emails and they can see that they've got five emails from their boss and then they're distracted by that so work out the ways to help you Kind of what I call switch off to turn on to kind of get in the right space or headspace and also sex education across the lifetime like I recommend podcasts TED talks books there's so much good no- normalizing non-stigmatizing non-shaming content out there at the moment by experts mm. and researchers and I think when we understand more what's going on for us how our body works how our brain works how sex works suddenly we think, okay, well, I can do something about this. Mm. Or because the minute we feel bad about ourselves, that's not 
going to be yeah. a turn on. That's not going to make us feel open to sex. It does the opposite. What is your approach with clients who have alternative sexual lifestyles? Like something that we wouldn't consider normal mm-hmm. in terms of their sexual desires. So the way that people most commonly talk about this is kink and vanilla is okay. a, a phrase that people often use. Um, so vanilla would refer to what we consider to be that kind of non-kinky sex. But this whole thing is so subjective. You know, what's mm. your vanilla is not necessarily my vanilla. And I think also what we've seen is the term vanilla has been used in quite a detrimental way. And a colleague of mine always says, vanilla's delicious. You know, it's creamy. (laughs) I love love it. It's my favorite (laughs) flavor. Um, And, you know, for me, it really works. Yeah. And so I think that if that's the type of sex that people like to have, like there's no shame in that. It goes back to the individual differences thing. And again, probably where it becomes a problem is where we see that partners might have different interests. Right, sure. And that's about how you manage that in your relationship and if you're for example really curious about trying something kinky with your partner or you're really interested in trying something um you might say to your partner if you kind of feel able to I'm really interested in this what do you think or you could send them a podcast or something I often say to people if you find an article about something send it to your partner and say what do you think about this and use that as a conversation Mm. starter and your partner might say oh do you know what not for me actually but then work out what could be an in-between right. that you both feel comfortable with that you mm-hmm. could try? Because obviously if we're nervous about something, mm. sometimes we might think, well, do you know what, I'd rather not. Like mm. That might be a bit too much for me. But there are so many ways that you can navigate that or things that you can try that can introduce those elements of excitement or novelty or something new or mm. something that you're curious about. So lots of people asked about kind of longer term relationships and marriage. Do you see marriage changing sex lives? And if so, why do you think it kind of changes? Mm. I think that, I don't think marriage in itself Mm. changes sex lives, but commitment, I think, can change Mm -hmm. sex lives, whatever that looks like for that couple, or if there's more than two partners in a relationship. But I think that it's all about what we talk about in therapy is the invisible contract. So what's the contract that you guys have made? Is it that it's one of monogamy? Mm. Is it that that's something that's explicit? Is it that that's something that's assumed? So whenever I'm working with couples, we really get down to the nitty gritty of, you know, what have you explicitly agreed Mm. to do in your relationship? What is this model of your relationship going to look like? Because sometimes people might just think, oh yeah, well, you know, we just were on the same path and it just kind of happened. And then we, you know, I thought we were agreed on that, didn't Mm. we? And it might have never been a conversation. So I think it's about the rules that you set and the boundaries that you set for your relationships. Now, what we do see is that in long-term relationships, typically sex happens more at the start of relationships or sex might be more adventurous at the start of relationships. Mm. We kind of see a a decline gradually and that's a common trend. But then what we need to do is to focus on the quality then of that sex. And I think that that's where actually people that have been in long-term relationships can report a really good Mm. quality of sex because they know each other well they might feel more confident with someone that they're really close to and more able to relax particularly Mm. people with things like body confidence difficulties because Mm. they're with someone who shows them that they love them and appreciate them and desires them and are attracted to them and so they can feel more comfortable with someone that they feel familiar with yeah and and how would you recommend someone with body confidence issues 
that's kind of affecting their sex life approaches mm. sex. I think it massively, massively impacts sex. You yeah, know, I work with so many people who don't feel comfortable in their body for just so many reasons, whether it's about specifically about their genitals and the sexual mm. parts of their body or just about feeling comfortable mm. in their own skin. Yeah. Because if we are struggling with how we feel that we look or how we feel like our body appears or how we feel in our bodies, then we have to be quite exposed and vulnerable to be sexual with someone course, yeah. because we're putting that part that we don't feel comfortable with in front of someone else for someone mm. else to see. And obviously we know that a lot of those things are our own stuff and our own internal critics mm. and quite a lot of the time learned experiences or things people have said to us or, and our partners don't necessarily see that. But it can be sometimes for people might need to manage their environments a bit mm. more. So to wear something that makes them feel good or to change the lighting or mm. to focus on sensory input. And this is where things like mindful sex can actually play quite a big role as well because when we're struggling with our body and how we feel about it, we're so in our head, preoccupied mm. with our thoughts. And actually that takes away from our pleasure. Yeah. Because where we direct our attention, we experience more. And that's why it's not uncommon, for example, to see people who are struggling with body confidence and mm. sex say that they're also struggling with orgasm. Right. Because it takes their attention away from what they're physically feeling mm. and the pleasure, which is most likely to drive them to peak pleasure and to orgasm. Because they're up in their heads, preoccupied with what they think is going on by their thoughts, by their focus on what their partner might be thinking. Mm. And your attention's kind of off in different directions. And what is mindful sex? So mindful sex is basically incorporating mindfulness techniques, so things like helping you to be in the present, to channel your attention in a particular intentional direction, mm. and bringing that into sex. So... Mm. Things like focusing on the senses, trying to kind of be in the moment, not distracted by your thoughts, not focusing on a goal. or So particularly with orgasm, we mm. see it's really common to become really preoccupied with yeah, a, sure. the goal-orientated nature of sex, which is if I'm struggling with orgasm, I become so focused on having one that I then can't get to it. It's kind of mm. like an ironic... Yeah, yeah, of course. ...an ironic process. And... So then what we need to do is kind of get into the physical by things like focusing on the five senses. So really bringing our attention into the here and now in okay. order to experience more physically. Yeah, and so if someone was struggling with reaching an orgasm and kind of having that as a persistent issue, like what would you recommend as your kind of top few things to be practicing? So I think one of those would be focusing on the senses. So things like okay, I can feel my partner's hand like running up my mm. arm. I can feel like the warmth from their skin. I can smell them. I can mm. see them. Um, I'm running my hand through their hair. So you're kind of running through because you can't be out of the moment and having experiencing those things in the right here and now. Mm. Um, I think the other thing might be kind of unpacking what it is that's stopping you. Mm. You know, a lot of people, it's shame mm. around pleasure fear of being out of control worries about kind of narratives that they might have been taught about what it means to be someone that experiences this type of pleasure or enjoys sex there's mm. so many undertones and mm. stories about sex or what it is to be someone that likes sex yeah. or you know I think we, we all know those stories from when we were younger yeah, yeah, you know about people used to say things like oh girls that dress like that mm. or people that act like that mm. 
And there is so much loaded in that. And particularly when we're learning about sex, we can internalize all those ways that we think we're meant to be. And if we feel that we're different, that can cause a real inner conflict. Yeah, no, I can completely understand that. And what would you say the biggest misconceptions are around orgasms? Oh, that simultaneous couple orgasm is like the holy grail. Right. (laughs) Because that's, I think, what everyone thinks they should be aiming towards all the time. But as we know, the orgasm gap exists in heterosexual relationships and the Mm -hmm. difference between men and women's reported rates of orgasm in different sex sexual experiences. Right. And so there's just no problem with partners orgasming at different times in different (laughs) ways through different methods. But I think we all got so preoccupied with that version. Yeah. That's so interesting. And also that it's always the goal. Yeah. Yeah, Great sex can happen without orgasm. Yeah. You can really enjoy yourself without it ending in an orgasm. And I think that that's another big thing for us to think about. And for people who don't know, could you talk a little bit about the orgasm gap? Mm. So this is a piece of research, again, Laurie Minto I mentioned earlier, basically found that there is a significant gap. It's around 30% between how often men and women in different sex, so male and female sexual experiences, were orgasming and then were reporting orgasming. And then it was how much men were reporting their female partners orgasming. And that gap was, again, massively reduced because what it it showed is that a lot of women were faking their orgasms. Mm. And so then when you think about why they're doing that, a lot of the time it was because I don't want to upset my partner, because I don't want them to think that I'm not good at this, Mm. um, because... I don't want to look like I don't know what I'm doing because sex ends when we orgasm. Right. And so we're kind of at the point now where I mm. feel like we're trying so long, so I'll just fake it to bring it to, bring mm. it to a close. And a lot of them are social reasons. Mm. And should people be faking orgasms? No. <laughs> no. It's a short-term solution sure. yeah. for something which doesn't help long-term because mm-hmm. what it also does is it means that a lot of people feel like, and men orgasm, fake orgasms too. Yeah. What happens is you then tend to get into a rhythm of repeating the thing which doesn't get you to orgasm and your partner thinks they're doing it right. You know they're not doing it right. And when I say right, I mean right for you. You're thinking, oh, this isn't going to work for me, but I can't tell them because Mm. I've started this now and we've been doing it like this for six months. Mm. And now if I say then they'll know that I've been faking it for six months and that's going to rupture our relationship and this Mm -hmm. is the person I love, I don't want to hurt them. Just try and do something different Mm. or communicate to your partner that you want to try something different or that it doesn't feel like it's not... You know, a simple phrase like, do you know what, this isn't really working for me at the moment or Mm. I used to really enjoy this and it's not working for me as much anymore. Can we try something different? Because Mm. we can get then so stuck in that way of being, but also it's, you know, sex is something that is pleasure focused and fun and to be enjoyed and it's not a performance and along those lines how do you keep the spark in a long-term relationship when it comes to your sex life you have to do it with intention you have to try and I think the way that our brains work is we habituate we get Mm. used to things and so of course we're going to get used to 
having sex with the same person. We're going to learn their body. We're going to learn what we like, what they like. Mm. It might become more predictable. We are busy. You know, if you think about the start of relationships, we kind of almost forget everything else that's yeah, happening yeah, around us. We throw everything into getting to know this new person and sex is a part of that for most people. And so we we kind of forget to call our friends. We might drop the ball at work a bit. We're like throwing everything into this. And then we have to kind of come back to reality a yeah, bit more <laughs> and get into the rhythm of life. And so I think that what we see consistently in couples research is the couples that make an effort with their sex lives are the ones that are reporting the most sexual satisfaction. And again, it's not the sexy, exciting answer, mm. but it's the true one. Yeah. Which is that if we kind of sit back and wait for it to change, it's not going to. Yeah. So actually taking an active role mm. in maintaining and restarting that spark. Definitely. And routine. We can talk about changing routine, like changing something every time we have sex, doing one thing differently, mm -hmm. whether it's lights on, lights off, starting mm. with our clothes on, clothes off, with music on, using a lubricant, introducing a sex toy, trying a different mm. position, having sex in a different room of the house, where, mm. you know, there are so many kind of micro ways that we can be constantly changing things, mm. which can make a difference. Yeah. Difficulty finishing from sex when it comes to a man in a gay relationship? So it's not an uncommon thing. What we talk about is kind of delayed ejaculation. And again, it's quite similar to the mindfulness stuff we were talking mm. about earlier is if we become so focused on it, we get preoccupied mm. with the thought of I've got to finish, I've got mm. to reach orgasm, I've got to get there, I've got to, I've got to come that that becomes, in a way, overriding mm. of us focusing on the physical pleasure that's actually right. going to get us there. And with sex, because we feel like there's still this taboo, because mm. there's this discomfort around it, even if it happens maybe once or twice, we get so in our heads then that the next time we go into sex, we're already thinking, oh, that mm. thing's going to happen again. Mm. What am I going to do if that happens again? You know, we're building up that anxiety before we've even got there and it's such a quick cycle to start yeah yeah no that's so interesting and I can imagine as well in relationships especially that aren't heterosexual where I assume in the part like for however many years of your life where you're told one thing is quote-unquote mm. wrong or not normal or something that you literally have to come out about which yeah. you know even the concept of that being like you have to reveal your sexual kind of um, orientation which seems kind of crazy mm -hmm. I can imagine as well not even like conscious shame or like any of those things in terms of perpetuating while you're having sex yeah absolutely and I think that one of the best things to do is to just say to a partner do you know what I'm really struggling to mm. orgasm bit at the moment so don't think that if I don't that I'm not enjoying myself mm. but it might not happen it's nothing you know it's yeah. not a big drama and I'm just gonna we're still gonna have sex and I'm still gonna enjoy it mm. like if that's what you want to do yeah but I can still enjoy sex without it. And mm. just even the act of taking the pressure off mm. means that we don't have to then be focusing on... And that's when it becomes performative. Sex mm. becomes performative rather than pleasurable. Mm. Mid-twenties, been married less than a year. Is it normal to barely want to have sex at all? I think that it's... For me, I'm interested in the change, if there was, yeah, like a, right. big, if there was a big change for someone. Um, what we see is that also a lot of women 
don't experience a lot of spontaneous desire. Right. And again, then we feel that the problem is with us because that's the version that we see everywhere all the time or the version that we're told we should feel. And I think that is about learning how to define desire for you. There's some absolutely brilliant TED Talks. There's an amazing book called Mind the Gap. Educating yourself on how desire works for you because suddenly you realise, okay, it's not me. Mm. It's how I was taught about this. And we can reshape those ideas and suddenly you can start to be in control of it. Mm. And I think that that's a big part of it. Yeah. This one's really interesting. Why is going down on girls so much more stigmatised than with men? There's a lot of shame, particularly around female genitals Mm -hmm. or vulvas. It's been quite historical. I mean, there are certain cultures and histories where the vulva was celebrated. Mm. And then... We, if you think about even when you're kind of at school and you're learning about periods and things, what those teenage narratives were, were like, ooh, disgusting, your periods are disgusting. Like, how many of us grew up with that kind of messaging? Mm. And I think that there is, and we see that because we see that the kind of feminine hygiene industry has really tried to hook in insecurities. Mm. You know, that there are now like supplements to make your vulva and your vagina smell better and things like that, which are not necessary. So the Mm. vagina is pH balanced and does not need interrupting. Mm -hmm. Please do not interrupt with it because then you can have repeated yeast infections and things like that. But I think that so much of it has been because female sexuality, sexual pleasure, you know, sexual bodies have always been seconded. And perhaps, and this is based on entirely no evidence, but just my thoughts, perhaps as well the emasculation of kind of service to a woman, like in that way where, you know, we see, especially probably in things like porn, where like a blowjob is seen as like, you know, kind of like (laughs) serving your partner in that way. Mm. And we already as a society have issues when it comes to you know, maybe a man serving a woman. Mm. And so that kind of association of the flipping of, I guess, power dynamics, even though it's not a power dynamic, you know, it's, mm. a, it's a sexual act. But I can imagine that probably... Plays a role. Yeah, plays a role. Yeah, I think absolutely. And we know that female health, you know, research is behind right. that of men's. You know, we see a real kind of lacking. And actually the sex toy industry is one where female pleasure has almost become much bigger. You know, there are... Mm much more sex toys for women than there are for men and it's an enormous enormous market Mm. and I think that's one of the ones where we've seen this kind of flipping Mm. of that dynamic where actually that is the priority yeah well wherever there's a kind of gap in terms of being underserved there's obviously a huge market opportunity as well do you think that the porn your partner watches says something deeper about them in terms of their kind of desire no not necessarily because a lot of people watch pornography that doesn't relate to what they want to do in life they're just Mm. engaging with fantasy and curiosity Mm. you know in quite a safe way a lot of the time if they're what and you know we see that I think the the ethical pornographers currently so people like Erica Lust who I was talking about earlier Mm. are so she has something called ex-confessions where people send in their confessions and they're making them into porn films oh that's so interesting yeah particularly because that was what you know, people kind of wanted to see and are mm. interested in. But no, I think, you know, I think obviously for some people it might show like an interest for something that they want to go and try further. But for a lot of people, how they engage with their sexual fantasies is a lot of the time, particularly if they're doing that in their imagination as well, yeah. is a way of engaging with it without 
having to explore it in in real life. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've not actually thought of it in that way because I know that there's like non-heterosexual relationships, the way that kind of porn opens up that experience to being able to kind of experience that. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, you know, you're saying it's a way of experiencing it without actually experiencing it and might just be out of kind of curiosity or interest or, you know, being able to engage in a way without it being something that Mm -hmm. you kind of do as a... Well, we know that a lot of women that identify as straight Mm. watch female pornography, so porn without male bodies in. Mm. And and why is that? Out of curiosity, out of interest, because they find that it turns them on, but it's not what they want to do in real life. So something can be sexually exciting, but not your sexuality and preference. And do you think it could also be porn is obviously aimed towards male pleasure and Mm -hmm. obviously two or more women is <laughs> without a male there is mm. kind of going to be you know aimed towards female pleasure in that way I think that's what's exciting about seeing the kind of new wave of pornography that's being made at the moment mm. and feminist pornography because it's being designed I think a lot of the time with users mm. in mind and not necessarily kind of clickbait titles and things like that right. and I think that can be something that's you know, a lot of it's also paid porn. And so mm. there's there's the ethical side of it, which is that there are levels of protection in there which are designed to create a safer space for everybody involved. Yeah. Oh, well, this has been so incredibly interesting. Thank you so much for coming Thank and sharing you. your expertise. I have no doubt that lots of people are going to learn a lot from this episode and also just enjoy, you know, your work in terms of the kind of opening up the space and destigmatizing and just talking, which, I mean, you'll know obviously how important that is. But yeah, I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com